KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up. Another mass shooting in America takes over headlines as police patrols increase in the deadliest sections of Philadelphia. If I'm violated by cops, in most instances I can live through that. But if a kid is shot and killed in a neighborhood, there's no turning back. Reaction to police presence, plus the mayor has promised more transparency through public briefing. But advocates say they could be better. You wouldn't want the police to lead a public health response. It's as simple as that. We dig deep into the latest efforts to curb the killings in Philly. Then she's the first Latina city solicitor. There's no other choice but to go forward with this lawsuit. And she's leading an innovative strategy for getting guns off the streets. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is gun violence. This week, 10 people died in a mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. Days before, eight died in a mass shooting spree at Asian spas in Georgia and in Philadelphia. 2021 is on pace to becoming the deadliest year in city history. But officials have promised change. One such shift is an increased police presence in high crime neighborhoods. Anton Moore is an outspoken gun violence activist in South Philadelphia. He's also founder of Unity in the Community. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Anton, you know, so Commissioner Danielle Outlaw, she's rolled out more police presence and patrols in neighborhoods like yours in response to residents calling for this. Mm-hmm. First, your reaction. My reaction is kudos to her. What people don't understand is you should never tell people how they should feel. You get what I'm saying? So when you're talking to people that have kids and you got senior citizens and they're saying, look, it's getting real out here and, and, and they're worried people have ignored the heart of the community point of view. And I get the whole thing with defund the police and brighten the resources because we want those things. But in the short term, people want to be safe. We have to start listening to that because it's very important. Do people feel safe right now with gun violence so high? People don't feel safe. You know, everybody I come in contact with and talk to, and I'm always out in the neighborhoods, they're like, look, I don't even come out my house. Like, I don't even do this. I don't even want my kids playing on the steps. It shouldn't be that way. Do I agree we have to, you know, invest in the infrastructure? I agree with that. We have to start funding programs and making sure resources get to the heart of the community. But if you talk to people in tough neighborhoods where this stuff is going on, they want to see police presence. I mean, they want to feel safe in their neighborhood. They want to be able to go to the corner store. They want to be able to go to the park and allow their kids to play. These are the things that everyday citizens want to do and they should be able to do. But there's this tension, Anton, between the whole idea of criminal justice reform, police presence in uh, communities of color, and the idea of public safety. And they seem to be colliding right now because for a lot of times people wouldn't want police in their neighborhood. But is that true or is that some kind of a misunderstanding? They want police to do their job and they want police to treat them fairly. I believe in criminal justice reform. I will bring you 20 guys that I helped that came out of jail to help them turn their lives around because I think that's important. And I'll tell you, I believe in working with everyday citizens and I believe in 
you know, criminal justice reform. But I don't believe in it to the point that it's on the backs of young people getting killed in our community. So we really have to, you know, zero in on who we let out and what resources that we give them. Because if we let a bunch of people out and kids are getting killed, we find out it's linked back to the people we let out. Then we have to do our homework as people and say, what are we fighting for? Like I said, I agree with most of my work is around at-risk young people and, and returning citizens. I get phone calls all the time of brothers coming home wanting a fair shake, and they should get the fair shake. But also, too, we have to pay attention and listen to people and everyday residents when it comes to this gun violence. I saw you got pulled over with your grandma in the car. Yeah, grandma. You got pulled over. You didn't do anything. What are you mad about that? I was more concerned about my grandmother. Like, I'm sitting with my grandmother. Me and her just came back from a family friend house, having a good time, and I got pulled over. And when I got pulled over, my reaction was, I was really concerned about her reaction. And she asked me, funny as hell, she said, I hope you ain't do this. I ain't going to jail with you making a joke. The, the officer pulled me over and said, hey, your tent. And the reason why we're really doing this is because of the gun violence in the neighborhood. And they just took my ID and went back. And my grandma was like, you know what? I get it. I understand. Like all this shooting and all this nonsense carrying on, I get it. I understand. And if you look at it and you talk to any parent that 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 that, that have kids, their first priority is to protect their children. And if it means, you know, pulling a couple cars over and trying to find guns, then we can have a conversation about that. I, I get it. I get it on both sides. But I wasn't that alarmed. I was like, okay, I get I get the environment that we in. I'm not ignorant to tie into the national conversation, oh, the police this, oh, the police that, because I understand the police role. When they sign up for that job, their thing is to serve and protect. I get it. And they have to do their job. But also, I get what's going on in our neighborhoods. People are tired of shootings in the community. I've heard people even say there needs to be some kind of lockdown. You know, we want the National Guard. We need something to stop this killing. Do you think people have an appetite for that type of, of level of, of law enforcement presence in community? People want to feel safe. You hear me? Here's the thing. If I'm violated by cops, I can live through that. You get what I'm saying? In most instances, I can live through that. But if a kid is shot and killed in a neighborhood, there's no turning back from that. There's the trauma that comes with that. There's a funeral, frustration, and, and, and all the stuff that come with that. I have to look at the reality. When you're talking to people, Sherry, and you say, well, the cops are killing people, people are tapped into reality, Sherry. They're like, well, I haven't seen a cop kill somebody in this community, but I've seen X amount of young people kill X amount of young people, and that's their concern. So we have to stop tying in what I call the city, the center city narrative that sounds good for the atmosphere and start talking to community folks on the ground and listening to them and, and understanding how they feel. I think Jamie Gauthier, um, the, the, the council person, I had commented, was like, hey, and ta -da -da. but I said, look, Jamie, I get what you're saying, but I also understand what Ms. Donna is saying. And Ms. Donna is who I see every day in, in the neighborhood, I hear, you know, Rafia's concerned with her son and, and the things she's facing. And number one priority, we got to keep these communities safe. So when I do hear, no, you're honest, man, and this, this, and that, I get that. But there are people out there who are shooting up the neighborhoods that the people that I work with and serve every day are concerned about. We can no longer ignore them because a conversation is popular. 
Yes, the police conversation is very popular. Yeah, they're discriminating, they're killing people. And I get that. But I do understand the bloodshed that's taking place in our neighborhoods. And, and, and by understanding that, it's up to me to address it and not playing a narrative into a narrative because it sounds good. You know what I mean? A lot of people that you hear that speak of gun violence and, 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 and criminal justice reform, some of them people don't live in our neighborhood. Because I know the people who are really, you know, geared toward the criminal justice reform and working with, you know, extra returning citizens to get their lives together. But then I know people who just sit behind a door or sit at a computer or sit behind walls and say, oh, my God, we need to do this. We need to do that. But you never see them out there. I could walk through Wilson Park, one of the dangerous parts of South Philadelphia. I could walk through there at night. You know what I mean? I could walk uh, Tasker Homes, all these different neighborhoods and understand what their main concerns are. And we got to stop telling people how they should feel when they experience something. Yeah. And I and I and I. I've heard people say this. Yes, a lot of these strategies for, you know, defunding the police and reducing crime and preventing crime, those are long-term strategies. But the next one weekend, we want to make sure that people, um, you know, are alive. Police present a short-term solution. They are all for the short-term because people are living day by day. People wake up in the morning and say, Lord... If I don't get shot and I can make it back in here and see my kids, I'm all right with that. So when people say, oh, that's just a short-term solution, there are some people out there that are fine with short-term, day-by-day solutions until we get the long-term solution figured out. And they have every right to want to feel safe every day and experience the short-term solution until we figure out the long-term solution. But what can we do now to help the people. And so that's the that's the theory for the gun violence. Have the police come now, keep it quiet until we can get stuff open and get these prevention methods um, stood up and running. People don't want to hear you talk. You get what I'm saying? All the conversations and all this. Well, yeah, because we're going to, they don't want to hear that. How can you keep my son safe? How can you keep my daughter safe? How can you keep my grandmother and mother safe? They want to see what you can do now. Grandma, grandmother has to wake up tomorrow morning and walk to the store. You think she's worried about a solution two years from now? She's trying to get through the day that she's actually living it. So people mm-hmm. feel safer with police presence in these neighborhoods that are really, really plagued with gun violence. They do. If you want to talk to 10, 15, 30 residents, they're going to tell you. I think sometimes we tie into the social media narrative that sounds good, like, yeah, the police is shooting up the neighborhood and they're doing this. No. People want to feel safe. We have to get out of that so that that city hall headline and start to get into the neighborhood headline and what's taking place. When I pull up in my neighborhood at night, I'll make sure I look behind me to make sure nobody follow me in the house to make sure I'm safe. This is what's being talked about. You got the pandemic, the, the coronavirus, but you got to meet an even more pandemic, the gun violence epidemic. You're 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 happy that the police are in neighborhoods. And for now, uh, they're the best They're the best thing going, it seems like. Until we can figure out what's going on, this is what the people want. They do understand that a lot of this stuff takes time. That the whole defund the police and making sure, you know, the resources go where they need. I get the long-term stuff and I'm for the long-term stuff. But we have to look at what neighbors want on the short term and you can't tell them they shouldn't want it. People would rather have a little bit of discomfort and get pulled over 
rather than being shot or seeing their child shot. Looking at what's taking place and being pulled over, I would do it again if it kept somebody safe. If it kept your daughter and your son out of the grave, I would do it again. Pull me over. Go ahead. I'm fine with it because I'll live to see the next day. But it's a lot of kids that aren't living to see the next day. But we do want respectful police officers, but people want to feel safe. They don't want to walk out their doors and be ducking bullets. And people can't even go out to, to, to regular events because they're scared of being killed. That's real. Anton, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Mayor Jim Kenney has also promised more transparency on gun violence. He held the city's first biweekly public gun violence briefing last week. Jim McMillan of the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence reporting co-wrote an op-ed demanding more from those efforts, and he's here. Jim, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me, Cherry. You were a big proponent of uh, more transparency for the city's response to gun violence. And this was part of a push by uh, council member Jamie Gauthier. The briefing happened. How do you think it went? I'm grateful for everybody working on, on this, for making it happen, for deciding to let it happen. But I don't think we got what the public was asking for in the first briefing. So I've been in touch and in, on various levels with most of the people calling for this briefing. Everyone that I heard from was looking for a public health response, a comprehensive public health response to prevent gun violence. And that includes every city department and community group and everyone working on, on preventing gun violence, hospitals and doctors and whoever I'm forgetting. But we heard at the top of, of the, from the top of the first uh, briefing through at least three speakers, we heard primarily from the police department. And we heard about law enforcement and criminal justice responses. I'm not challenging the way that they conducted themselves. That's just not what anybody was asking for in this briefing. And I got to say, the mayor has declared gun violence a public health emergency. He said that in 2018, actually released a plan, um, you know, the, for safer communities based on this. But it seemed like the public health part of it was left out, is what you're saying. Well, you know, you wouldn't hire um, plumbers to paint your house. And so you wouldn't want the police to lead a public health response. It's as simple as that. Now, at the same time, the city does uh, provides countless services that would be that could be viewed as part of a public health response. Everything the city does, from providing you know jobs and job training to uh, safe places for young people, um, you know, every whatever green spaces, parks, whatever I'm forgetting, are all part of are all are all services that can help prevent gun violence. But without hearing from everybody, we, 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 need to, we need an overall strategy to understand what's most effective, to do more of what's working and, and, and less of what's not. And we know during the pandemic, I mean, a lot of the gun violence prevention uh, efforts had stalled, like youth programs, sure. uh, youth sports, after school programs, all the school, all the things that kind of kept kids and young people occupied many jobs. Uh, eliminated or, or postponed because of the pandemic. If you if you think about it, how could we make this better, Jim? If we're if we're looking to the future and and we're asking for tweaks, and the mayor has asked for feedback, what sure. what could we done to make it better? And you wrote an op ed about this. There's, so there's a broad spectrum of things that a city can do and that citizens can do and and that philanthropists can do to stop gun violence. But in terms of making the the, the, the briefing's better. We need to hear from the leaders and the experts in all of those realms. My primary research partner in my work in recent years has been Dr. Jessica Beard. She's a trauma surgeon and public health researcher at Temple University. We co-authored a response to 
to the first briefing for the Philadelphia Inquirer. You know, we, we asked to hear from more, you know, more people, but to hear, to, to have more data, to hear from a wide variety of sources about what's being done, how it's being done, um, what the research shows, how we're doing compared to other cities, how uh, intervention programs, we, we, we need to hear more about the intervention programs, not just what the city's doing, but how they work, what actually is happening, how it works, and how, how do we know it works? How are they being assessed? What would you like to see on the 31st of March uh, as a step in the right direction? Well, I, I think it would be best if if somebody other than the police department led the session. I, I've seen reporting that suggests the city is going to release its, its updated roadmap to safer communities that was published um, a couple of years ago. And, and maybe that will serve as a more comprehensive framework. It's not about who's leading or, or who's left in or left out of, of the briefing as much as the need to be comprehensive. We need all hands on deck. We need everybody working on this in the same space together. If nothing else, I hope this briefing forces everybody working on gun violence prevention into the same room. That that creates a different sort of accountability for the media there. I've heard, I've heard stories that it's sometimes hard to get answers when one agency tells a reporter to go check with another agency. Well, if everybody's in the room, we're going to find out what's going on. And then we can figure out where the, the cracks are and hopefully help the city and push the city to, to create remedies for those. And so for folks who do not know, what does the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting do? The, the Center for Gun Violence Reporting now resides at Community College of Philadelphia. We launched last summer and we've got big dreams, but we're off to a modest start. The, the, the signature program so far is called the Credible Messenger Reporting Project. It pairs people from the community, people with direct lived experience with gun violence, and they're unfortunately plentiful in Philadelphia, and it pairs individuals who apply with journalists with a great deal more professional experience to produce reporting together. But it's not just, we're not just striving for the reporting, but excited about the relationship, relationships we will build, the networks we can build, building trusting relationships and, 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 and creating, you know, content that's that leverages the combined authority of expertise in journalism and firsthand lived experience. So how can folks support you and the work that you do? Right now, there are just a few ways to get on board. Philadelphia residents who have been impacted by gun violence can participate by applying to the Credible Messenger Reporting Project, but anybody can visit our site. The Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting is online at pcgvr.org. And there are all sorts of resources there. They're intended primarily for journalists covering gun violence from community connections to data resources to maps. But anybody who wants to know more can find it all there. And, and, and there's, of course, there, there are you know, buttons to connect with us and, and share feedback and ask questions. And we want to you know, just build this community, community larger moving forward. Oh, well, with that, I want to say thank you so much, Jim. Please check out the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. Their website is pcgvr.org. Thanks so much, Jim McMillan. Thanks so much, Sherry. Next up, she's the first Latina to be named Philadelphia City Solicitor. You know, you feel empowered, you feel valued, and know that you matter. The city's innovative way to arrest the power to get guns off the streets. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cop 
Taz out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week made headlines this year when she became the first Latina to serve as city solicitor of Philadelphia. Diana Cortez is a longtime litigator who spent time in private practice and worked in Philadelphia's DA's office before taking the top city lawyer job. And the millennial also has an innovative gun violence strategy to boot. Diana, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks so much, Cherry. Yes, and it is my absolute honor to have you on Flashpoint during Women's History Month. Congratulations uh, on your appointment as city solicitor. Thank you so much. You busted through both a race and a gender glass ceiling. What was your reaction when they were like, okay, we're swearing you in? I was really humbled and honored. It was a whole mix of emotions. So it was that recognizing the historical implications and that I would be that person, you know, I would be that Latina to be that first at times is I still can't get over it and fully wrap my mind around it. Um, And just with the huge responsibility and honor that it is, obviously, then there's some stress that goes (laughs) along with that. But at the same time, a lot of excitement, um, a lot of hope as well to be in the position to do things in a way that I wish other places where I had worked throughout my career and knowing that all those different observations I had made throughout my career, throughout my journey here now, there's no one else to look at but me. So to the extent that I can make these types of changes, create a very strong environment that is focused and committed to improving diversity, equity, and inclusion, committed to empowering all of our attorneys and staff, um, and just making sure that it is an environment uh, not only that produces top high quality, high caliber legal work product for the city and all of its different entities and officials, but also that it's a place that, you know, you feel empowered, you feel valued um, and know that you matter. Full disclosure, I met Diana uh, when I used to practice law and she was a young lawyer at a top law firm in the city. Both of us, we know what it feels like. And I know you know what it feels like to be the only woman many a times and the only person of color on a team. How did you sort of use that to to help you through the journey to getting to this position? It was a matter of, you know, continuing to work hard, to continue to realize what my ultimate goals were and continue to search for those types of experiences, you know, in this law firm or anywhere else that I was in and making sure that I was getting the right experiences and at times not being afraid to voice wanting those experiences too. Cause I think a lot of times in particular as women of color attorneys, there's, there's this whole like (laughs) decision tree you get to before you even open your mouth. Am I going to be viewed a certain way, right? Am I going to be the feisty Latina? Am I going to be like the angry black woman? Am I going to be the noisy, you know, entitled associate when in talking with some white male colleagues, they never have those thoughts, or at least a lot of them don't have those thoughts. They just do. So it was a matter of being mindful that those questions still occur for me, but at the same time, in a way, observing those that didn't look like me and saying to myself, it's okay to still have that confidence because I bring this value and, you know, just pushing through that. And I will say, and it's not just because I'm on your show, but I think Cherry, you were a great example to me 
you know, reminding me and sort of being that external voice to say, you can do this, you have that value. And like, and I think just to um, be that strong woman of color example, um, because there weren't, that wasn't always the case. The other strong, there were other women of color there, um, but not all of them, I think, were as encouraging or as great mentors as you. So I know that part of my success here is, is attributed to you and your messages of encouragement and your example too. So I would think it's a combination of identifying the right things that I wanted for my career and having that courage, gathering up that courage to to seek them out. Yeah. And you are basically in charge of a large law firm at City Solicitor because people don't realize that there's a lot of, it's not just you. It, it's like you have a whole team yeah, no. of attorneys <laughs> and staff members that you now manage. That's absolutely right, Cherry. So it's uh, over 200 or 220 attorneys and over 100 staff uh, work with me at the law department uh, in providing legal advice and counsel to all of the city. So all the city officials, the mayor's office, the police department, managing director's office, all of city council, um, different elected officials for different matters, all the different city officials and city entities and uh, agencies we provide legal advice to. And shout out to Marcel Pratt, who was one of the youngest uh, city solicitors ever. And he came in and you got, and you were actually one of his deputies leading the litigation department before you took this position, but you guys Mm -hmm. have had a very unique strategy and battling some of the city's most pressing problems. And one of those problems is gun violence. The legal department has gotten very creative in trying to solve some of these issues. In one case, you guys are dealing with uh, trying to stop the flow of guns off the street, but a major uh, impediment has been the General Assembly. So y'all sued them. Things need to get done, Cherry. We have to try to do something. So yeah, so we sued them. The case is called Crawford versus uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania at all. So we sued the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the General Assembly, and then the uh, the two leaders of the Senate and State Senate and State House. And the basis of that lawsuit is that the firearms preemption statutes, which basically say only the state has the power to regulate any laws regarding the, I think it's custody, control, transportation of firearms. So if it falls within that, it's on the state. And you municipality, city of Philadelphia, cannot pass any laws that impact that. And the way the case law has been interpreted, it's a pretty broad power. So our lawsuit says that statute is unconstitutional. It is preventing us from passing common sense gun regulations that in other jurisdictions that don't have this firearms preemption statute, such as New Jersey, they've been able to pass common sense gun laws on a local level, such as permit to purchase. And they've been able to see a significant, significant less amount of resulting gun violence. If you go through the complaint, it's a very detailed, over 80 pages, full with statistics and a real analysis showing making the case page by page, statistic by statistic, as to how it's this particular firearms preemption statute that is preventing us and it is unconstitutional. Black and brown people are being killed um, because there's this, 
you know, unending um, stream of guns and firearms that are just, we can't stop them. And what I think the city is arguing is that, look, hey, this is a life and death situation and y'all not helping. So we need to help ourselves. This preemption law is unconstitutional. This is a very novel approach, I guess, to taking this, this law down. Yes, it's unprecedented. Uh, it's creative. But at the end of the day, it's necessary because nothing else has worked. And I think the, I believe the complaint also goes through the detailed history of time and time again, where our Philadelphia state representatives have, have begged and pleaded for, you know, for some type of an exception or some type of compromise on that. And time and time again, they have been rejected by the rest of the General Assembly. Like it has not mattered to them that black and brown people have been killed. And in fact, in our complaint, we point out that black Pennsylvanians are 19 times more likely to die by gun homicide than white Pennsylvanians. The statistics are real. There's no other choice but to go forward with this lawsuit. And, and this is, uh, again, you know, this is after repeated cries by state lawmakers from this area saying, please help us. Yeah, and this is the city being offensive and not uh, waiting, because you guys get sued a lot too, I'm sure, <laughs> from all, and all oh, yeah. lawsuits. That's <laughs> right. So we're As talking you know. about when <laughs> yes. the city's on the offensive. And so, you know, I know you just started uh, in this position, but, you know, fast forward a few years, How? what, what do you think needs to happen? What, what are you going to be focused on so that, you know, when it's, your term is up or you decide, you know what, I'm going to move on, um, that you're going to say, you know what, we, we did the daggone thing. Great question. So it's, I, it's sort of three general things. So one, I think definitely in continue the great work on diversity, equity, inclusion. That's my predecessors, Sozie Talante and Marcel Pratt started and just to build on that further. The other piece we've been talking about, which is continuing with these affirmative litigation efforts. So not just with, um, public safety, so other types of initiatives or lawsuits to, um, to deal with the supply of guns into our city. We're more even, you know, we have this very innovative lawsuit, but we're also open to other innovative ideas to continue to put that pressure on. And I think the last piece, but definitely one of the most important is we're continuing to partner with um, our city clients in police reform, anything that we can do for the, you know, to, to improve that. Um, so we work with, you know, our, our city council, the administration and all these different, um, and any way we can to make sure that the significant police reform uh, is accomplished. Yeah. So you got some big, big things, diversity and inclusion, yes. innovative <laughs> lawsuits, proactive lawsuits, and police reform. So if those things move forward, you will feel like you did the thing. Yeah. So so that so that's the standard. You're gonna be so busy, but I'm so proud of you, and I'm so happy thank for you. Thank you. And I know the city is in good hands with you. So thank you so much to you, Diana Cortez. Thank you so much, Sherry. Next up, they're tackling poverty through job training. To make sure that when you leave OIC, you're well equipped to get a job. The historic nonprofit training Philadelphians for the future. We'll be right back. 
Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you are a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KWW, we are all about community and historic North Philadelphia-based nonprofit committed to giving people of color the tools they need to thrive in the workplace. It's taking extra steps during the pandemic. Here to talk about Philadelphia OIC is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, President and CEO, the one and only Judge Renee Carpool Hughes. Welcome to Flashpoint. It's great to be with you, Sherry. So I was so excited to hear that you were going to be uh, taking over the leadership of Philadelphia OIC. I know folks have heard about it, but please explain what it is this organization does. Philadelphia OIC is an amazing institution. It's 57 years old, founded in 1964 by an icon of the civil rights movement, Dr. Leon Sullivan, who of course was also the voice of Zion. He is the lion of Zion Baptist Church. He believed that we could help ourselves. Our mission has not changed in 57 years. We have one purpose, to eradicate poverty through education and job training. Your organization has a number of programs. Many are very futuristic looking as well. Yes. What we do that makes us unique is that we train people for the jobs that exist in our region and the jobs that will be here tomorrow. When you leave OIC, you are well equipped to get a job. Now, I'm going to share with you one of our most successful programs called BankWorks because this region is a huge financial services industry. Our last class, which graduated 100% employment. Wow. And that's our commitment. On average, each of our programs has somewhere around 89% employment. So we prepare people to get hired and we ensure they do get hired. We have a culinary arts program, drone technology, which is really aviation technology. We prepare people to operate drones and to take the FAA certification. Drones are used in real estate, insurance, construction, media. We train people for smart energy. If you're interested in energy of the future, besides gas and water, electric, look at solar. We train people for those. We work with the returning citizens. So we have a reentry program that wraps services around citizens who are returning after being justice involved and make sure that they have the skills and the tools necessary for a new start in life. Absolutely beautiful. And I know that the pandemic has presented unique challenges because we see some industries are going away and then other industries are cropping up. How are you helping in that regard? So what we did first and foremost is adapt, improvise, and overcome. OIC is known for its face-to-face, hands-on learning. But when the community shut down, we converted our learning to virtual. We have since come back into our building on North Broad Street. We had an architect come in and size all of our classes. So we are fully COVID compliant. 
Everyone who comes in this building is temperature checked, sanitized, COVID survey. It reduced the size of our classes, but we keep this blended model. Some instruction face-to-face, -face, some instruction virtual, so that we can keep classes going. Where do you see the workforce headed and how is OIC working towards that vision? So a couple of things. In our region, we spent the last 30 years becoming a destination city. We are the only World Heritage City in the nation. Mm -hmm. So our restaurants, our hotels, that is an industry we do not have the luxury of letting die. So there will still be a need for culinary arts, for people to work in hospitality and tourism. But what we did was revise it. So what's the first priority to get tourists to come back to our city? We're a clean city. So we have revised our program to upgrade our environmental services program. So people are not only OSHA certified, they're also CDC compliant so that they can get these jobs to help make sure that our city is a clean city and a safe city for people to visit. We're looking at the region to say what jobs exist. So we're moving into new technologies, medical, advanced manufacturing, to make sure that when you leave OIC, you're well equipped to get a job. Part of our secret sauce is that we partner with employers. So we are training people for the jobs that exist. We know exactly what skills employers are looking for. I just did an obituary story about Emma Chappelle, the founder of United Bank, who started out as a teller at Continental Bank, worked all the way up to VP, and then branched off and founded her own bank, becoming the first Black woman in the country to do that. Emma Chappelle is part of OIC history. It is Dr. Leon Sullivan who prepared her and said to her, you're going into banking. That's what sent her down to Continental Bank, Dr. Leon Sullivan, our founder. So when we tell you that we're setting you on a path for success, we're serious. If you're willing to put in the sweat equity, OIC will prepare you for greatness. Young people coming out of high school, this was a rough year for them. They lost a lot of learning time and, you know, college isn't always feasible for them. How do they get involved? How do they send their kids to OIC? filleroic.org. That's our website. You can call us 215-236-7700 between 10 and 4. We also operate an accelerated high school. So if you're between 16 and 21, don't have your high school diploma, call us. We can help you get your high school diploma and get you credentials for work. We are here to help you have a better tomorrow. If there's any best time to get some training and to set yourself up for a great future, it's now. It's right now because any type of government support you're looking at, it's one time, it will end. But education and the skills you'll get at Philadelphia OIC, that's a lifetime. Check them out, philaoic.org. Thank you so much, uh, President and CEO, Judge Renee Carville-Hughes for coming on Flashpoint. It for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from German philosopher and poet Friedrich Nietzsche. Freedom is the will to be responsible for ourselves. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.